Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here with The Pure Now Show. This is episode number four. My guest on the show today is Mr. Philip Rang, Director of Photography. Philip hails from Australia. He's been here in Southeast Asia for a few years and as of late made some very beautiful TVCs shot in the picturesque town of Hoi An. But he can tell you all about that. Here we go. Philip Rang. Great to see you. Thanks so much for being on the Pure Now show. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. First of all, you're a a DP and director. You've worked internationally. You've spent a lot of time living in Paris. That's Uh, correct. You've been been in Asia for quite some time. And you may shortly be uh, leaving us to go back to Australia. I'm going back to Australia in exactly 15 days from today. Well, I'm glad that we met when we did and we're able to do this. I want to know, obviously, more about you and your career, your your professional path, your journey. And uh, I I know that part of your passion is photography. You had your own studio. That's correct, uh, yeah. In Paris. And uh, how did this all begin? Growing up, in, in Australia, what was the experience or event that happened that began to guide you down this path and, and inspired you enough to go in this creative direction? It's probably because I've been um, suffering from uh, dyslexia. Dyslexia. And um, I've always been a very bad student, very bad at reading, very bad at writing, even though I really pursued it and pushed it and tried to improve. But um, I still get simple things like a, a C and an S mixed up. And um, it can mean the world of difference of, 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 of how people might perceive you. For example, I had this interview with this gentleman and he pulled me up on it. He said, look, you know, you're not a, you're not a SC, American Society of Cinematography, or a, you're ACS, Australian Society, Australian Cinematographer Society, I'm still doing it. And it was a simple thing, it was in front of me, and I, 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 didn't, I didn't see it, I didn't recognize it. But, um, so that's how I um, found it more simply more simple to express myself through images and photography. Uh, why film? I, I, I thought back about that and um, my grandparents in Australia came from Canberra, very, very modest. My grandmother was a one of 13 children and we'd sometimes go on holidays, not in caravans, but in tents. And uh, my grandfather had a Super 8 camera and we'd sit around, and literally it was a campfire or a fire in a, in a, in a 44 gallon drum. And we'd go into the tent. Uh, I must have been four or five or, or six, and we were watching the Super 8 films of my grandmother and her 11 sisters, one had died, and they were being, they liked to drink in Australia and they were dancing on tables with saucepans on their heads and um, that was where I think I got the first bite of wanting to work in films and uh, I did photography at school, black and white photography, I had my own little dark room, mostly sports photography 
I was involved in sports, in rugby and basketball, and uh, I started taking photographs of football matches, or what we call in Australia rugby league, and I ended up getting some of my photos published at a very young age, at 15. I first had my photos published, and I can remember a really funny incident. I wanted to photograph the tennis, and uh, I was living in, um, grew up and lived in Sydney, and uh, just before the Australian Open, they'd had the, um, the New South Wales Open, or the Sydney Open, and at the time it was on grass court. So I'd get a business card printed off, it would just have Philip Rang, photographer, and I'd write a letter with a typewriter because we didn't have computers in those days, and I'd send it off to um, the uh, Tennis Association, who was organising the, uh, the competition, and I asked for an accreditation, and there I was, as a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old, taking photographs at these international events, and I remember, I don't know whether you um, remember a tennis player, what was his name, Rod, Rod Turner? Anyway, I had all these massive tennis stars right in front of me and there I was on centre court, court with my little camera taking black and white stills. It was a, it was a, huge, it was a huge thrill. So I was, I was automatically bitten by the bug of taking photos and um, you only get good at taking photos by taking photos. You just got to keep on doing it and keep on doing it and learning from your mistakes and uh, you soon find out how to use the, the camera technically and how to use it fast and what you can do and what you can't do just by trial and error and obviously your, your eye becomes more honed in as you keep on doing it. So yeah, that's how I started very young and I continued and I travelled straight after school. I went. I went all around the world. I had a, first of all, I had a scholarship in Norway. I lived a year in Norway. And uh, as that year was coming to an end, there was a counselor who came to our school and he was from Camp America. And the deal was with Camp America, they would pay for your ticket to America and give you a job in a summer camp in America. You'd, you'd know this, that, you know, in the summer, all kids have a massive break of one month or two months, and this is in a in a in a, in a camp in the Catskills, upstate New York, and um, it was a performing arts camp, and it would have been early 90s, and it was just like the period when fame and dance and flash dance had come out, and we're at a performing arts camp. It was massive. There was like a thousand kids and. A hundred counsellors for, for a thousand children. And it was all about art, performing arts. It was all about dance, theatre, and, uh, and then they had sailing and other recreational activities. And the age of the children was from seven to 15, 16. And I was in charge of a houseload of 10-year-old kids. So I was the photographic counsellor and I just had film stock and, and black and white negatives and colour negatives and I'd teach lessons during the day and I'd be shooting three or four rolls of film a day. You know, that's like 120 frames of 36, no more, 200 frames, 36, 36 exposures, yeah, times like four, yeah, so 150 frames of photos every day, every day, and processing them and doing proof sheets and making my selections and at the same time teaching children. 
did that in America and stayed in America for three years, came back to Australia and applied for the Australian Film School. And the Australian Film School at the time, it was a government, it was called the Australian Film and Television School. And at the time it was run by the government, I'm pretty sure it still is run by the government, but, but you entered the school on a scholarship basis and they actually gave you a stipend. You're actually getting paid to go to school, film school. So there would have been, I don't know, three, four hundred applicants and then they had a, a three-day interview with 24 to take 12. And I got to the interview stage of 24. I didn't get in, I wasn't in the selected 12. But I wasn't too worried because at the time in Australia, in the film industry, I always wanted to get into film because uh, working as a photographer, you're very much alone. You're very much by yourself. And the idea of working in a team with other people is a lot more exciting and fun and it's more social. So I didn't get into the film school, but in Australia at the time, there was a tax incentive which meant that virtually all the money that you'd invest in the film, you'd get it back in a tax rebate. So it took me two days and I had two job offers to work on a film. As a trainee with, with no experience by knowing nobody, just by making a few phone calls and knocking on doors and going to see people. So I started on a film called Breaking Loose, a B-grade film. But um, I worked initially in the... Uh, art department. I said, yeah, I'll come and work in the art department, but you've got to take me on as a, as a camera trainee. So towards the end of the film, there was a location shoot. I did the sets. The crew came and I was, um, I was in the camera department. I was a trainee. I was doing the clapperboard in front of the face and I was sent to the truck, the camera truck by the focus puller. I said, go get me a six by six mat. Yeah? What's a six by six mat? 85 mil. Okay. 85 mil, six by six mat. So I'd run back to the camera truck, not knowing what to get, and I'd just bring out as many things as I possibly could. And that's how I learned how to work in the, in the camera department. And I worked myself up and uh, went away to London after doing several shows. I was taken on by a focus puller as his second assistant and we'd done a few shows for the English in Australia and within within a month of joining the film industry I went out to the desert twice to film in a place called Cooper Pedy which is a mining town but um, it's the resemblance of a Mad Max and it was very popular and we went out there twice in the first month of me joining uh, the film industry. So that's how I got started. You're listening to The Pure Now Show, a creative podcast for creatives presented by Balance. Do you feel that maybe this move into a visual referenced creative life saved you from potentially having a lot of difficulty and not being able to maybe even function well. I still deal with it every day, but you know, uh, you become re resourceful. Um, you know, lucky with computers now, we have spell check and that, that's sort of taken care of. Um, yeah, it, it saved me. I don't know, it, it, it seemed more of a, the logical thing to do, it, working in a visual medium, the logical path I should have taken, and I did. 
and I have. Yeah. What was yeah. what was the opportunity that presented itself that really kicked your career into gear? What was what was the one job that or opportunity again that you received that changed things for you? Well, it was that film, The Message from Fallujah. To be quite honest with you, I was I was very lucky in um, being able to do that film. I. I was asked to do it by the producer and then the director said that was a great idea um, and the producer seemed to have liked my work. I'd come from Paris at the time and so the work that I was doing in Paris was um, not very commercial but uh, a lot more artistically inclined because that's the way the French society actually works. Is um, you become cultivated in France, visually, in America, in Australia, in the UK. Just to give you an example, at the end of the news, the daily news at 7 o'clock or 6.30 or 8 o'clock or whatever, there's always a segment in Australia or the UK or, or America about sport for about 10 minutes. The sport's so important in all of these countries. But in France, it's 10 minutes about art collection that's being released, fashion, uh, the latest uh, film that's being released. Every day it's something different. It could be a theater, a theater piece has just been released. So in France, growing or learning or living in France for 20 years, you can't but help become cultivated artistically and culturally because it's thrown at you every day. I mean, that, that's only if you watch the news, but you go out on the street and you'll have film posters, you'll have music posters. It's, the culture is extremely important for the French and um, you can't help but become cultivated and develop your, your sense of, of, of taste, of, of good taste. What, whatever that might be. But was that experience, that 20 years there, did that help formulate your aesthetic and, and did that play a, a role in how you would present your work in the future? Very much so, very much so. And I can, I can look at work at the moment and I go, that's rubbish. That's just rubbish. Yeah. Only because I, 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 I've been privileged to see some of the best work which has been coming out of France, without sounding too elitist or French. snobby. Yeah, or, or snobby, but no, the, 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 yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, of course some of the work in France can be really quite pretentious as well, but there's a lot of very good work that comes out of France, because if it's not good, it, it gets, it, it really gets, you know, trashed. Berated, yes. Yeah. Why did you leave Paris? My father was French and so I went to France to meet him initially and to be with my French family. I have an uncle and I did have a grandmother there and you know I grew up in Australia knowing that I was half French. I wanted to know all about the French culture and uh, I ended up having three children there and I ended up separating from the mother of my children and so I left France in about 2002 and uh, I was in Australia until 2007 so I spent five years in Australia and I, I couldn't bear the thought of my children growing up without me of course I'd be making trips every summer to see my children but a summertime with your children is not a lifetime so 
I, I moved back to France to be closer to my children. And then when my children were old enough, you asked me, why did I leave France? I'd, I'd been traveling in Asia working, and in particular, this was in Indonesia. I'd just come back from three week shoot in Indonesia. And I'm sitting in my apartment, watching, I don't know, some film on TV. It must have been about midnight. I started getting all these phone calls. You know, first of all, it was my children. Papa, Papa, you okay? You okay? You okay? And it was in November 2015 when there were these simultaneous attacks on the streets where people were being killed randomly. And it's like, wow, do I really need to be in a place where you can be out in a restaurant and be gunned down by a machine gun? It was a Friday night and people were just getting killed. It's like, I'm out of here. I've, I've got, besides my children, I don't have an attachment here and I don't need to be around all of this. And the guy that I'd been working with in Indonesia was an Italian guy and he said, Vietnam is extremely busy. It's a good place to go for work. And I'd been coming to and from Vietnam since 2004. So I came to Vietnam on spec, packed my bag, made a few phone calls and said I'm on my way. And I started to work prolifically in Vietnam as from the end of 2015. Yeah, and it's been a pretty good, it's been a pretty good trip. So that's why I left France because people were getting killed and my children were just about to finish school. And I thought, well, it's time to head towards Australia and Vietnam was halfway on the way home to Australia and so I'm on my way back to Australia in 15 days time. I'm sure there were projects that were not ideal. Give me an example of maybe a project that you worked on that although it may have been nightmarish at times but you learned some things from it. They're not very um, artistically challenging or interesting and you do them because you can and you know how to do them. Um, and then we get asked to do that work for 24 hours without a break and without extra money. And it's like the only country in the world where people think it's acceptable to work for 24 hours making films. And what have I learned from that is to say, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> you just. Yeah, you know, it's always good to practice your craft, it's always good to be doing um, what you love to do, but it comes to a point where it becomes a chore and it's not interesting and you become burnt out and you go, I'm not doing my best work, I'm not creating anything that's really outstanding or exceptional, I think other people can do this. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So, so what I've learned from that is just say no, it's okay. <laughs> so on that note, you're looking back at your younger self as a creative person. Now that you have learned certain things, learned lessons, and uh, can avoid uh, certain pitfalls, how would you address that? How would you counsel yourself or uh, mentor yourself uh, now that you have the knowledge that you have? Well, I, I, the way I'd counsel myself, which I also counsel my children, I have one daughter 
who is an artist and she wants to be a fashion, not a fashion designer, but she wants to make costumes for the theatre. And so I, 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 I tell her, look, if you want to be good at what you do as an artist, you have to be the best of the best. So take note of the best in your industry. Try to do their work, their style of work, and don't waste time on work which is not the best you can do. You know, without a real commitment, then the work is not going to be satisfying for yourself and it's not going to be satisfying to the people you're giving it to either because it's not your best work. So what I advise is have high standards for yourself and try to always keep those standards high and don't, don't lower your game because the most successful people they always leave clues. So, so use the most successful people as your benchmark. You're listening to The Pure Now Show, a creative podcast for creatives presented by Balance. What has been your experience being here in Vietnam? I mean, when you came, you said you were very busy, prolific. There was a lot of activity, a lot of work for you. What was the difference in say making films or working out projects here versus some of the other places. I mean, you've been all over the world, you've, you've shot all over the world. It, it was wonderful to be able to practice my craft and, and be very busy and, and, and to be inventive. A lot of the time I would suggest things and people would run with it and they would work out really well. Um, and then a lot of the time it's not what people wanted. They wanted something that they'd already seen before and um, they weren't interested in, in, in breaking new ground or being adventurous and, and doing new work. It was pretty much standard of what has already been done and people not listening to what I'd like to do. And you, you're obviously working in a collaborative field so you have to you know, toe the line. You can't always do what you want to do. You have to sort of, you know, go back on what you'd like to do and do what you're asked to do. And sometimes you're asked to do things that anyone can do, I guess. But you do it because you've been asked to do it. And, you know, that's what you paid for. And it's like, okay, we'll get along and we'll make sure it finishes on a happy note. And my last job that you liked in Hoi An, I was extremely lucky because I had a client, I was working directly with the client and they came to me. And we worked in a very collaborative way. You know, they had a very simple fairy tale idea and I'd, I'd known about Hoi An. And I, the fact that they wanted to shoot there was just like, wow, this is a dream come true because it's such a beautiful place. Plus we had a beautiful girl and the story was very simple. I love stories which are simple without any complex narrative and it's very straightforward. And you can tell the story in subtle ways and not having to be so loud and, and, and be elegant. I get, that, that's another thing that I learned living in France is being elegant and, and subtle and discreet 
and, and, and soft and gentle. And so I was very lucky with this client. They had the basic idea, the basic structure, what they wanted, and we, we built from that. Very lucky. It was, it was a wonderful, loving, collaborative experience. And that sort of working is thrown up on the screen. Hoi An is the coolest place I've been to in Vietnam thus far. Yeah. It is, it's like a movie set mm. all the time. Uh, yeah. I, I've only been there during the day. I haven't seen it illuminated in its mm. romantic nature at night, but I plan on returning in the short term. And it must have been a lot of fun to be there in the evening and kind of have your way with that location. Well, it was very exciting. But you know, with the uh, pandemic, Huan is almost dormant, so there was none of those lanterns crisscrossing the streets as you see in the in the TVC. We actually had to rent and put them up because uh, it's extremely quiet. There's nobody there. There's like nobody, nobody. So we had the town to ourselves, which was great. You know, we'd wet down the ground and we'd make it shine and sparkle, and and we had smoke to create a little bit of ambience and and a beautiful girl in an alley. I call it the dream job. You know, the whole thing about doing something good is, is being being prepared and, and preparing your work. It must have been a nice experience for you to just relax here. You met a woman here, right? You're married now. That's right. I'm taking her to Australia with me. Yeah. yeah. Is she excited about uh, uh, this adventure? No, 15 days away and the bags are packed, yeah. Yeah. She's excited. She's really yeah. excited. This is going to be a really wonderful adventure for her. She's, um, yeah, she's already there. You're in a global industry and, and the pandemic certainly has impacted so much of it. I mean, it's pretty much shut Hollywood down for a long time. I know there are things coming back. I know they're shooting a lot out of the country, going to places where it's more viable. How has that directly impacted you? I've got myself a ticket in 15 days time. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of work going on in Australia with a lot of American films going on. And, um, you know, Marvel are building two new studios in Australia because they plan to keep on working in Australia. There's a new tax incentive for foreign films to be working in Australia. This time last year in Australia the, and most other places, the, the film industry had basically shut down and it's come back like on fire just recently, just recently. So. I am planning to, to leave Vietnam to take advantage of the new boom in the film industry in Australia. I've got friends that they've been booked on jobs, colleagues, cinematographers, and they can't get crew. The crew are not available because they've all been gobbled up on these uh, American films and they can't get a gaffer, they can't get grips, they can't even get cameras, camera assistants. Yeah. It's, so, it's so busy. So I'm very excited about going back to Australia. So how's the pandemic, yeah, affected everybody, of course. And people are shooting elsewhere than in Hollywood, they're shooting in Australia. So it's, it's, it's really exciting. Well, I, I appreciate that you took the time to come on the show and, and chat with me and that we, our paths crossed serendipitously. Fantastic. And I'll see you again soon before I leave. Yeah, for sure. Right. Safe travels to you. And uh, all the best to you and your family. And, uh, and thanks again. I really appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure, Mark. My pleasure.
If you enjoyed the Pure Now show, you can check out more episodes at balancestudio.tv or anywhere fine podcasts are broadcast. Pure Now is produced and engineered by Hai Ha Dang and directed by Dong Wun Guan. Thanks so much for watching.